to Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning, and today we have a very interesting guest. Cameron Colby with uh, the company BioBot is here today to talk to us about uh, wastewater-based epidemiology and BioBot's role. Cameron also has an interesting background herself on her her journey to where she's at, so we can talk to her a little bit about that. Uh, Thanks for listening today. So let's jump right in. Thanks for being here today, Cameron. Thanks, Blair. I appreciate it. All right. Well, maybe uh, the uh, listeners already know me. So uh, how about you introduce yourself as far as, you know, your background, how you, what jobs you've had and how you ended up where you're at? Certainly. Um, I think I can preface my background with saying that my entire life has been fundamentally centered around water in one capacity or another. And anytime I've deviated away from that, I've found myself back Uh, being fundamentally uh, associated with water, and in this case, wastewater. Um, So from a very young age, I was a swimmer, um, swam all the way through high school, swam in college, where um, I first started college at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, and was recruited to swim for them. And by the time uh, I was two years into that experience, um, I very quickly realized that maybe the military was not the right pathway for me. Um, deepest admiration and respect for those who who do continue on that path. But um, I left the Naval Academy to go to the University of South Carolina, where I got my degree in civil and environmental engineering. Uh, And when I graduated, it was kind of in 2010, uh, towards the mid-to-tail end of the financial recession. And my only prerogative was to get a job that could pay the bills so that I would not have to be dependent upon my parents anymore. And so I took on a position with GE uh, in their aviation uh, department. And so the role I took was in their operations management leadership program um, with a specialty in environmental health and safety. And that was that environmental piece of a civil and environmental uh, engineering undergrad degree. So I got the opportunity to uh, rotate through a few awesome locations in this country, Madisonville, Kentucky, Greenville, South Carolina, where I am now all while kind of focusing on different environmental health and safety related projects um, and kind of soaking in that that business and leadership acumen that GE has has become so famous for. After GE, where did you where did you move uh, on to after GE, Cameron? After GE, I kind of took the the OSHA piece of the experience that I had with GE and moved uh, on to a staffing company in the upstate of Greenville, South Carolina. Um, where I took on a role on in the risk side of things. So um, not only the, the OSHA and safety piece, but also um, the insurance side of the house, which you know drives a lot of what companies decide to do from a, a compliance and a safety perspective, um, because you know insurance is very quickly becoming a, a very expensive uh, bottom line uh, item. So I. I worked in that role for a year and a half and then shifted kind of naturally into consulting for a small firm in Greenville. Um, I did primarily environmental and safety consulting for manufacturing facilities. Um, It was there uh, that I became a professional engineer with some of the environmental work that I've been doing um, and eventually went on to work for my largest client, which was in the solid waste sector. Um, 
I can say that's probably one of the most unique areas that I've worked is in solid waste. Um, it's a very different industry from manufacturing. It's very different from even the, the wastewater in, uh, side of the house. So worked in solid waste for a while, um, covering risk. So in lines of insurance uh, for a, a mid-level company, um, all of their OSHA, EPA, and DOT com- compliance, and eventually their HR compliance as well, which is a bit scary. Uh, knowing nothing about human resources and being asked to take on that role. What did you, uh, if I can ask, what did you, what was so different about the solid waste side? What are the, uh, what are the, what's the weirdness there with solid waste versus uh, wastewater or any other kind? So wastewater primarily is um, it's going to be run by like government, like government decisions. So either you're a special purpose district or you're a city or you're a county or a municipality Solid waste is almost always contracted out or in is mostly contracted out to private companies. And with these private companies, there's not a, a huge amount of, of operational regulation. And there's it felt like the Wild West. We'll put it that way. Oh. <laughs> and it was it was very um, you know, the industry moves pretty much like clockwork. It's pretty predictable. If you know the size of a company about where they are in their growth and about how long they have until they sell to the next biggest fish. Um, And that's really the whole prerogative of the waste industry is to sell up and start your own outfit again and re-go through the process. So interesting process from from that perspective and that it's, you know, very wild westy. Yeah, you don't see uh, you don't see many wastewater plants selling to the uh, next biggest wastewater plant. So that's interesting. That could be an interesting, an interesting thought though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it was about the time that I was asked to take on HR responsibilities that I was like, you know, I really have moved away from what I I care about, which is water and, and specifically, I guess, you know, kind of more largely the, the environmental piece. Um, So I decided to go back to school to get a master's degree in environmental engineering And I severely underestimated how difficult this was going to be 10 years after graduating undergrad. Um, I could go on for days on the stories of how many times I like threatened to quit getting this master's degree because, you know, coming back after not using any of the tools that you've, that you learned 10 years ago was, was difficult, but I was very fortunate. I went to Clemson. I met some really fantastic professors and colleagues And it was actually through finishing my master's that I got introduced into the wastewater sector. And so um, kind of as I was finishing up, I started working for Renewable Water Resources in Greenville, South Carolina, REWA for short. Um, And the project I worked on was um, an assessment of the prevalence of PFAS uh, in wastewater treatment plants, both influent, effluent, um, and biosolids. And actually the, the... abstract I put together on some of the, the leaching behaviors of PFAS and biosolids was selected to present at the WEF National Biosolids Conference last year. So I felt really fortunate to be very new to the industry and to be presented with such great opportunities to work with smart people and be able to present that information. So after that research project and after I graduated from Clemson, I went um, moved into the role of water quality and sustainability leader at REWA where I was responsible for process quality and process controls, um, all of the compliance for each of the nine wastewater treatment facilities, uh, operator training, 
And I also got any of the special research projects that we were engaged in. And wastewater epidemiology was one of those. So starting in early June of 2020, um, REWA started sampling their largest of the nine wastewater treatment facilities, about a 16 million gallon per day plant, um, twice per week for the presence of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, and so we worked very closely with Clemson on that um, and some other stakeholders to uh, really start to get a grasp as the field of wastewater epidemiology was starting to become more prevalent of what the data was communicating. How do we you know, synthesize this data, aggregate it and communicate it in a way that makes sense to people? How do we make the case that even as a wastewater treatment facility, we're not the end user of the data necessarily, but it's still critical for us to be collecting this data to help inform public health decisions. Um, so I got really wrapped up in that project uh, involved in the CDC um, National Wastewater Surveillance Survey Program and oversaw REWA's involvement in that. Um, and it was there that I was introduced to BioBot. And I just kind of immediately fell in love with the mission of what Biobot was doing, how they were going about it, um, the, the level of service that they provided as a, a wastewater treatment plant um, was just really impressive. So I shot my shot with them and I applied for a job I was completely unqualified for. Um, nice. <laughs> I like your moxie. <laughs> and you've already made one good decision going from HR into uh, all this exciting uh, cutting edge science. So you're on uh, your. Yeah. Why not try again? I'm on the up and up. I yeah. suppose. <laughs> so um, luckily they saw value in having somebody that was uh, had experience in the wastewater industry and um, saw that that really fit with their mission and what they were trying to accomplish as an organization. And they said, you know, hold the phone for a minute and we'll see if we can't figure something out where we can work together. And a couple months later, here I was uh, working in strategic partnerships with Biobot. Nice. Well, I'm glad that that worked out for you. Their company, we deal with Biobot. They do, you know, testing for us. And uh, of course, but uh, as South Platte Renew here, and I'm always amazed, like they have people, I was, I thought everyone was back at MIT, you know, in, in Massachusetts, but they got people spread everywhere, working remotely, uh, doing their thing. So it's always amazes me how spread out they are. It is amazing to have people all across the country, working across three different, four different time zones, um, different states, and just how how easily it is to stay connected and stay productive. Yeah. Yeah. Things have, uh, things have definitely changed due to COVID or, or maybe they would have got there anyway, but yeah, everyone's working, uh, working over zoom and making it work. So that's good. It was interesting. You said you're, it was hard to get your master's after being out of the game for 10 years, but I did that same thing, went back later and got it. And I, I had the same feeling like, what am I doing? And now when I look back now, wait till give it another like 10, 20 years. And you'll think, how could I ever have done that? I could never do that now at this time. But uh, uh, yeah, let's get to the interesting question. So the interesting question is uh, what's the weirdest thing that you found on the ground or by the side of the road? This is a really interesting question. Um, I would have to say uh, a couple of years ago, I back to the theme of water, I uh, went scuba diving in the Galapagos Islands. And one of the craziest things was the fur seals. Um, the fur seals 
it's their domain. It's their home. You're just a guest in it. They are on the ground everywhere, blocking walkways, blocking sidewalks, um, laying on park benches. I mean, they really are just like, don't bother me. I'm here. I'm sunning. I'm doing my thing. Uh, step over me, step around me. It's like a really fat, lazy dog, really. That's just doesn't have a care in the world, except for the next time they're going to eat and making sure you don't block their sunlight. So oh. probably the craziest thing I ever saw on the ground. Nice. Yeah. Here we call those geese because they're everywhere and they don't, they don't move either. They're like, go around. Well, they good. This too, right? Oh yeah. You can't mess with them. You can't show fear. If you show fear, they, they can sense it. They can sense it in your eyes and they, they, uh, they'll get you. <laughs> All right. Well, Cameron, let's get into the uh, the more technical stuff and the BioBot stuff. Can you can you explain to us what BioBot does kind of in a nutshell and, and what its main mission is? Certainly. Um, BioBot is a wastewater epidemiology company. Um, we know at this point that human waste contains data on our health and exposures, and that makes wastewater a really valuable asset that we all contribute to naturally by using the toilet. Uh, so BioBot collects and tests wastewater samples to measure the amount of virus that causes COVID-19 that's present in the sample by using PCR technology. Um, some, some kind of unique things about this, uh, the data we know reflects the true scale of COVID-19 infections in a city or a town, or as, as we in the wastewater field would say, a sewer shed, because not everybody seeks or has access to testing, but we know everybody poops, um, at least yeah. I think they do. That's an uplifting message, really. Even if you think you're, you're, you know, worthless or you're down on yourself, hey, you're still generating data for the for you know, companies like this. So yeah, Absolutely. no matter what, you're always you're always valuable for something. Always. That is that's a that's a great way to think about it. We should get that on a t-shirt, actually. <laughs> Maybe rephrase it a little bit. <laughs> I love it. So BioBot's mission is to transform like the wastewater infrastructure that we have in place now in uh, the form of collection systems and wastewater treatment plants into public health observatories. So, you know, really uh, honing in on those relationships with those who are the experts in collecting samples um, at wastewater treatment plants and taking that data, um, analyzing the data, aggregating it, and being able to put it in a format that's digestible, that's actionable, um, and that can lead to more data-driven public health decisions. I like that word actionable. So many times we collect, you know, data points every every second, every two minutes, whatever, but figuring out what to do with those and how to how to make those actionable are sometimes the hardest part. Well, can you, you know, to that end, can you tell us what BioBot's role is in the whole COVID monitoring? Uh, during the pandemic, and I guess we're still in the pandemic. So take us kind of through BioBot's role in the whole in the whole pandemic. Certainly. Um, so I'll, to take you through the full role, I'll start just a few weeks before the pandemic. Um, and actually, even the time period before that, BioBot was focused on addressing the opioid crisis. And that's really how the company was, was born, um, which was the number one public health crisis in the U.S. When COVID-19 hit, we saw an opportunity to demonstrate that wastewater can be a versatile platform to respond to, to new threats. Um, so in less than four weeks, uh, BioBot had developed and validated a PCR assay to quantify the level of COVID virus in wastewater with uh, their academic partners at MIT and Harvard. 
and became among the first in the world to commercialize testing for wastewater for the presence of biomarkers, including COVID. From there, they launched a pro bono campaign to encourage communities to submit wastewater samples for analysis at no cost. And not surprisingly to, to you or I, but maybe surprisingly to people who aren't familiar with the wastewater industry, um, wastewater treatment plants were the ones that stepped up and responded to this call to action. They obviously had the expertise and capability to collect samples, um, but really were kind of like they, they picked up the innovation and the thought leadership and they kind of, they dove in doing what wastewater treatment plants do, you know, normally, which is uh, they throughout their daily operations are protecting the health of the environment and um, the public in any given community, just in their day-to-day -day operations. And so that was some of the most enthusiastic response and encouraging response about all of this was, you know, how readily willing wastewater treatment plants were to, to step up and say, yeah, we want to help out in this public health crisis. And we want to do this on behalf of our communities. I think it was easy being on the wastewater side because, you know, our industry has kind of switched to this wastewater as a, as a resource rather than a burden kind of philosophy where, you know, we're mining nutrients from it. We're mining, you know, in our, in our case, in our plant, we're mining biogas from it. We're mining clean water from it. So, you know, thinking of, well, you know, it's not that far of a stretch to say, oh, you can get information from this. Although it was kind of shocking because it's like, you know, this is what we already do. And now we, it contains all this information that we never really, never really thought of. So yeah, it's, a, it's interesting to see it from, from the other side. It's pretty fantastic. Absolutely. Um, so throughout the pandemic, we've mostly focused on collecting data that represents entire cities and towns. Uh, we're currently working with 42 states in the U.S., and our data represents about 10% of the U.S. population. Um, additionally, BioBot was awarded Phase 2 of the CDC um, National Wastewater Surveillance Survey contract to collect and analyze wastewater from over 50 states and territories. So we're now working in smaller communities as well, such as nursing homes, schools, colleges, jails, any kind of congregate uh, living facility, office buildings. Um, and increasingly we see interest from new potential sentinel sites such as airports. So if you remember back to the very beginning of the pandemic, these uh, were some of the first entry, obviously entry points into the country for COVID-19 were through, through airports. Um, so that's, that's kind of, where we've progressed from the beginning of the, the pandemic to uh, where we are now. That's interesting. The whole Sentinel, Sentinel sites and looking at, at the airports where people bring it in and people take it out. And yeah. Well, what has been the most surprising thing to you about this, uh, this journey from, from the beginning till the end Has anything, anything surprised you along the way? There have, and I'm going to speak uh, specifically from, from my perspective as somebody who's been on the wastewater side and is now seeing things from the kind of the biotech side or the other side of the coin. Um, it was very surprising to me how few people are really familiar with the wastewater infrastructure that we have here in the U.S. and even in their own communities. Um, I can remember conversations with my friends and families when we first started sampling for you know, SARS-CoV-2 in the wastewater. And, and there was so much confusion around not recognizing that there's a difference between drinking water and wastewater and not realizing that those may be different entities completely depending on where you live um, and really not thinking about what happens with what you flush when you flush it. 
Um, so that was that was probably one of the most shocking things for me is, is how little people really knew about wastewater and wastewater treatment. Um, the other thing that was surprising to me is, you know, we think about wastewater treatment and, and we're, we're regulated, wastewater treatment sector, you're regulated by the EPA and, or your state's delegation of the EPA. And we have this environmental purpose. And then it came out, we have this public health purpose as well. And if you look back to the, you know, how wastewater started, it was for public health reasons. And then it kind of shifted into environmental reasons. And now we're seeing that it's both environmental and public health. And those communication lines, state to state, are not consistent. There's not one communication line on a national level that's a concerted effort to really bridge the gap between wastewater treatment plants and, and the regulatory side from an environmental standpoint and how they can help from a public health standpoint, knowing what we do now. Um, and so I think that's an area where once that bridge gets better gapped, uh, better, I'm sorry, once that gap gets better bridged, uh, <laughs> We don't want to gap it anymore. No, no, we already got that. <laughs> Once it's better bridged, I think the, the opportunities are, are endless for how this data can be used for proactive purposes and, and for the greater good. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, it's moving quickly. I'm surprised how quickly BioBot, you know, stood up their program. The EPA is doing this national surveillance. States are, you know, at least Colorado uh, did a similar effort for their largest wastewater plants. And it, it was amazing to me, like well, under under pressure, how quickly people got together and, and got things set up. So that's yeah. that's encouraging. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Cameron. Well, now it's time for the uh, mid-show segment here. Uh, this article is in Forbes, um, February 28th. So it's pretty recent, just the other day. And I'm, I don't vouch for this. This is like half sales, you know, maybe they sent a press release to Forbes, but it says Tidal Vision says it's crab shell derived solution is a cleaner way to treat wastewater. So uh, I'll just read some excerpts from it. Treatment plants in the United States process about 34 billion gallons of wastewater every day, according to the EPA. Conventional treatment products that contain metals like aluminum and iron can cause their own problems with the clean water that's discharged, says a Washington state company called Tidal Vision. Uh, Tidal Vision upcycles crab shells, a commonly discarded byproduct of the seafood industry, into a biopolymer called chitosan. They turn that chitosan into a ready-to-use liquid for treating stormwater and wastewater. So I guess to uh, to flocculate and to remove you know things like nutrients instead of these metal salts, they have found uh, chitosan. And I get, oh, here's another, this is from the article here. Kytosin has a net positive charge that binds to suspended solids, heavy metals, and minerals, hydrocarbons, and other pollutants. In the end, only clarified water remains, which that, that might be a stretch, only clarified water. But I, I'd be interested to see how it does on, or if, if it works for nutrient removal. Here's another part. The traditional coagulants are non-biodegradable metals-based chemicals. All non-biodegradable aluminum metals that end up in the wastewater sludge generated at the treatment sites. Uh, they are used because they are cationic or positively charged, so they bind to the anionic or negatively charged contaminants in water. This is like a chemistry class here. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, chitosin, on the other hand, is the only naturally occurring biopolymer in the world with a positive charge. And Tidal Clear can beat the price of metal coagulants, Kasberg says. Of course, he's going to say that because he's selling it, but it, it, this is interesting, this whole recycling old crab shells into a liquid that can can treat water and is a natural 
you know, natural to the environment. Okay, here's, well, we're almost to the end of the article here, but what's amazing is how much water can be cleaned with such a small amount of processed shells, the CEO says. There's roughly 24% chitosin in those shells, which means for every 1,000 pounds of shells, we get 240 pounds of chitosin. Uh, this is enough to, on average, treat about 29 million gallons of contained stormwater or wastewater. So next time, uh, next time you're eating your your uh, crab from a can, think you probably maybe you've helped somebody treat wastewater with the byproduct, you know, the shells from that. It says more than 25 wastewater treatment companies across the U.S. are using Tidal Clear. Casberg says as of this month, we've received an NSF 60 certification that will now enable us to sell Tidal Clear to drinking water treatment facilities as well. So I don't, like I said, I'm not vouching for Tidal Vision or, or that, but it's interesting that uh, people are finding different biopolymers and chemicals that will that will take the place of these uh, mined minerals and, and mineral salts that we're using now. Oh, absolutely. I've only got to wonder about that smell though. Seafood yeah. Starts to stink after a while. That is true. I didn't think of that. That would reek. Uh, they, they didn't mention that in there. I might have to send a, a question to the, uh, to the author there, but all right, let's move on to, uh, to our second segment of, of questions here, Cameron. And uh, let me ask you this. How can wastewater epidemiology benefit people in general? You've kind of hit on this, but, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, SARS-CoV-2, but in general, how can the, how can the process help a community or, or a town? Certainly. So if you think about, um, if you go to your doctor or see your doctor regularly, sometimes you may have to give blood uh, or sometimes you may have to pee in a cup. Uh, and the information that's that's extracted from that tells you, uh, tells your doctor really important health information about you, things that you've consumed, what you might be exposed to, what may be going on inside your body. So if you think about that, except for we're not talking on an individual scale here, we're talking for a whole community, um, understanding what's happening from a, either a disease standpoint or maybe it's from a substance standpoint, like opioids or fentanyl or some of the new synthetic and naturally occurring opioids. There's a lot that can be gleaned from this community perspective of uh, what we see in wastewater and being able to take that data and, and analyze it and um, you know, apply mathematical models to it so that the output of uh, an aggregation of that data is meaningful information. Uh, that can drive to, again, more data-driven public health decisions, it can really be, you know, game-changing for communities beyond just the individual level. It's amazing, really, to me when I think about it, that when I was in school, like in, in college in the 90s, like PCR was like a new thing, you know, able to, being able to amplify the, the RNA or DNA of something and detect how much is there. And now we're to the point where we can do that with whatever we want and do it over a population of however many, maybe I'm getting old, but I'm just, I'm not like amazed at where science has gone just in the, the uh, 20 or 30 years of it uh, since college. It is really amazing. Yeah. Um, what else do you think might be detected? I think you mentioned some of these, but in addition to, to SARS, talk about some of the other, you know, you mentioned opioids or, or drugs, which is a big problem in, in the country now, I know. So figuring out where that what communities are most affected. And I think it ties into, you know, environmental justice issues a little bit and, and social justice issues. But what, what else besides opioids and SARS might we look at? 
Absolutely. Um, so diseases and other disease outbreaks. So um, hepatitis, flus um, are both examples of other potential other diseases uh, that can uh, have the potential to be detected within wastewater and uh, treated similarly to how we treated SARS-CoV-2. Um, High-risk substances, like we mentioned, opioids and fentanyl. Uh, antimicrobial resistant bacteria, you know, this is one that we've started to hear a fair amount about uh, in the wastewater, uh, on the wastewater side of things, but also on, on the public health side of things. Um, and then I think, I mean, there's potential for other viral indicators such as colophages, which are the viruses that target E. e. coli bacteria. Um, and then additional to the COVID data as well, looking at the emergence and spread of variants of different diseases. Um, so being able to perform the sequencing uh, to determine which variants you may have uh, present. And actually uh, we've been able to demonstrate successfully um, the detection of both influenza A and influenza B, um, as well as like we've mentioned before, um, substances such as fentanyl and other opioids. So of course more, more research and development needed there um, but just going to, to state the importance of that, the sequencing data, in addition to identifying other um, biomarkers that can help us make, make good public health decisions. It seems like they can pivot pretty quickly because during the biobot testing for COVID, it was, as the variants popped up, it didn't take them long to be able to recognize those variants and, and, you know, track those variants and, and the spikes of those. So yeah, it's, it's it moves fast, I guess. It does, and um, I, I can't stress enough that the the only way that this happens, and the only way that um, companies are able to pivot quickly, based on whatever the threat may be, is that you have participating wastewater treatment plants that are, you know, willingly sending samples um, to to be used for these purposes. So again, a, a kind of a kudos and a shout out to to those in the wastewater industry. It's been good to be on the wastewater side. We've done like five five or six or more news stories and nobody ever wants to come out to the to the uh the poop plant but this this topic has got people excited so we've had stories and then you know you're like really there's someone at the door who wants to come in let's let's we five people rush and and uh, take them around the plant so it's been good to get that exposure on you know wastewater treatment in general and and the other recycling and renewal efforts that that go on you know, because they're interested in this topic. Absolutely. So Cameron, let me ask you this. What is, uh, what is BioBot's plan for the future? I mean, you talk about some of the other things you could look at. What's their, you know, more from a business model or where do they see themselves in, in the big scheme of things in the future? Yeah. So uh, the future of BioBot remains very much rooted in its mission, um, which is, again, turning wastewater treatment infrastructure into public health observatories. Um, so the way to do that is to continue what we're doing currently while expanding our capabilities, whether that be customers, testing assays, um, high-risk substances, infectious diseases, um, and helping to define what we do with the data, what gets done with the data. Um, so some additional insights here, you know, providing insight on what the data is showing and expanding that knowledge base. Uh, becoming a thought leader or continuing to be a thought leader um, within the wastewater epidemiology field and progressing the field forward as a whole. Um, really standing behind having wastewater testing becoming part of our existing infrastructure instead of, you know, an overlapping or an overlaying layer right now, having this really be ingrained in a, a nationwide program that, that 
um, utilizes the infrastructure that we have in place, um, continuing to strengthen the bridge between the wastewater sample collection process and those data-driven public health decisions, so that actionable data. Um, and really, you know, from my perspective, like of critical importance is making sure that we build, you know, strong and meaningful relationships with the wastewater treatment facilities, um, because they're the sampling experts and they're going to be the experts in helping to identify like how we can continue to make this uh, a viable practice going forward and how we can continue to utilize this for the health of our communities. Thank you for that info. And I salute the the good work, the high tech leading edge stuff you guys are doing there at BioBot. I think it's making a, a big difference in helping public health officials, helping people understand wastewater and this whole COVID situation. So uh, thanks for the work you're doing there. Absolutely. It's easy work because it's, it's definitely work worth doing, like you said. Yeah, it probably beats HR. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to any HR right, right. listening out no. there right now. It's a tough job that uh, <laughs> not anybody can do. That's, that's for sure. I have a total... Total uh, undying uh, respect for HR folks. That was not a dig. I just say, you know, um, all right, you ready for, I'm going to dig out of this hole by saying, are you ready for the uh, end of show quiz, Cameron? All right, good. Well, today's quiz, since you are from BioBot, is a bio quiz. And uh, there'll be three questions, multiple choice. And the object is to get all of them, of course. But, you know, if you don't, don't get down on yourself. Are you ready for question number one? I'm ready. Which of the following movies is not considered a, and I don't know, tell me how you say this. Is it biopic or biopic? Ooh, biopic, I think. That's how I always said it. But then I heard somebody say biopic. So anyway, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Is it A, Malcolm X? B, The King's Speech, C, Walk the Line, or D, Apollo 11? Which one would not be considered a biopic or biopic? However you say it. Hmm. Maybe I'm having to completely reconsider whether or not I know what the word biopic means, <laughs> but I'm going to go with Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. <laughs> um, walk the Line? Oh, I'm sorry. Walk the line was a biopic, biopic. Now, now I'm driving me crazy how to say that, but uh, that was about Johnny Cash, the life oh. of Johnny Cash. Apollo 11 is actually the answer because it's about a single incident, not a person's whole uh, life or a you know larger portion of their life. That's what the internet. That's what the internet said, and I don't argue with the internet, Cameron. Never argue with the internet. <laughs> But you can still you can still get a passing grade on this test. You have two left. Uh, number two, Steve Austin was the bionic man in the 1970s TV series The Six Million Dollar Man. What actor played Steve Austin? Who, who was who played the bionic man? Was it A. Burt Reynolds, B. Richard Dean Anderson, C. Lee Majors, or D. Robert Urich? Well, seeing as the only Steve Austin I know of was the Stone Cold variety back in like the World Wrestling Federation days, I'm going to pick the guy with a name that sounds the most bionic. So whoever's name ended in majors. Oh, 
That is correct. Lee Majors. Wow. You, uh, you deduced your way into that. I, I guess it was deduction or, or luck, whatever it was you got it. Lee Majors is correct. You are one for two. You could get a passing score. If you get this one, your last question, the flowery lies people describe themselves with on Instagram is known as their bio, their Instagram bio. What is the maximum character limit for these self-aggrandizing lies? Those are my, those are my words, not the internet. Uh, is it A, 50 characters, B, 150 characters, C, 300 characters, or D, 1,000 characters? How long can your bio be to try to impress people on Instagram, Cameron? Hmm. I'm going to go with 50. 50. I'm sorry. That is incorrect. That is all right. It is actually 150. They give you a little more, but that's not many characters to, uh, to really uh, hype yourself up, but that's all right. You got lead majors, which in my mind was the, was the hard one there. So good job. Congratulations. You did not uh, get skunked on the end of show quiz and thanks for being on the show it's been very interesting you've been a delightful guest and thanks for sharing all the info about biobot and water-based epidemiology in general awesome thanks blair it's been a pleasure and to our listeners thanks uh, again for listening if you have show ideas or you uh, know guests you would like to to recommend for the show shoot me an email at streamingwater at mail.com that's m-a-i-l.com not M-A-L-E, that would be weird. Mail.com, thanks to the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association and the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council for their continued sponsorship of the podcast. And uh, we don't have an advertising budget, so if you like the podcast, I ask that you give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever, wherever you're listening where you can put in a good word for the podcast or tell a friend or colleague about our show and, and see if we can get some new listeners that way. But thanks for listening. Thanks for being here, Cameron. We'll see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast.